I love this whole mindset of goodness, kindness. The world just needs it. I mean, we are craving and in pain with all the ugly and evil and it gets the headlines. And I just hope more and more kindness is the force that we embrace because it does change the world. Good day and welcome to the Leading with Nice interview series podcast. My name is Matthew Yule, and today we have a guest I'm super excited about. Uh, it's an author, speaker, customer service expert, Joseph Michelli. Welcome to the show. Hey, Matthew, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. All right. So for those of you who aren't familiar, you've authored close to a dozen bestsellers, typically around customer service excellence. I'm thinking, of course, of the book that drew me in first was the Starbucks experience, followed by the New Gold Standard and uh, the Zappos way. And more, more recently, we're going to get to those in a few minutes. But what I really want to investigate first is when I read your work, I can't help but feel uh, almost like you are reverse engineering customer service excellence. And I'm curious, I know you described writing as your side gig, like your consulting practice is your main main gig. So what drew you into wanting to like reverse engineer, write about it and teach others this? What, what's the attraction for you? So I was working in Seattle, Washington for a Pike Place fish market, a little sea, sea uh, food market there uh, in the Pike Place area. And I'd been consulting for them uh, there had been some stories that had been shared out in the media and some books written about them. And I thought, well, I was working with Johnny. Why weren't we telling the story? So yeah. we told Johnny's story from Johnny's voice. And uh, from there, uh, having told his story, I was looking out over at Starbucks and it was just a block away, the original Starbucks store. And I thought, well, I haven't really seen the story told by about them other than the CEO, Howard Schultz, had his his book, Pour Your Heart Into It. Yes. I thought, well, maybe I can get inside there and I can start looking around as an outsider. Uh, with a PhD in organizational development, it made sense that I would analyze these things and then try to cull out the nuggets that we could all get access to. And, you know, that, that leads me to my next question is, you know, your books are a, a who's who of Fortune 500 companies. And, you know, you're just, you're like one dude. Like, how do you get now? Actually, I know that recently you you divulged that you were working with Godiva chocolates. Which, by the way, I need to see Godiva in uh, a book about cho- not necessarily about customer service. Just I want to read about chocolate. So if you put that on your to do list, I'd appreciate it. But how do you get access? Like, because you get the, they pull back the curtains for you. Well, early it wasn't easy. I mean, to be honest with you, it was kind of ridiculous. And um, I remember looking in the back of my Starbucks card uh, for the 800 number for customer service. I called and I said, I want to do a book about you. And um, I, you know, I shopped it around forever throughout their phone trees to try to get to somebody who could talk to me. And then I did talk to somebody who then vetted it to the senior leadership team. They had read the Pike Place Fish Market book and were influenced by the Pike Place Fish Market and some of the things they did. And before you know it, I was in. But once in there, it it was a battle to get inside of the Ritz-Carlton where they have lots and lots of gravitas and they don't want anybody messing with the brand. And then at some point, it just starts taking off, right? I mean, if somebody hasn't written these kind of books and they contact a brand, most of the time the brands are going to be very polite in their uh, standard email 
fortunately, you know, now the people that I used to write about at Starbucks have since gone to to Google. And so will we do a book about Google? Because I have many of the same people that I worked with there. It's a, it's a lovely problem right now that I have in my life, but it wasn't always so. We talk often, uh, leading with NICE, uh, to both internally in our company and with clients about, you know, this, this starting. And there's a quote, I think it's from a cartoon. The first step at being great at something is sucking at it. <laughs> really bad. Yeah. And that's about the second and the third and the 50th step as well, I think. <laughs> well, I just love that you called the 1-800 number. When I was doing auto journalism, my first car review I got because I called the GM 1-800 number and they put me through to like their media fleet operator. And that's how I got into doing car reviews back in the day. I don't do that any longer, but I think it is a bit of courage and stupidity all together put, you know, into that. You're, you don't know that you shouldn't do it or, um, you know, you just kind of do it because it seems like the most logical thing to do and you're fearless and willing to look stupid. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, if you are driving and, um, listening to this podcast, I want to encourage you. I'm an audible subscriber and I've both read and listen to Joseph's books. I'm going to talk about the Starbucks experience and leading the Starbucks way now. And if in this moment you're thinking, oh, I want to check those out, definitely uh, if you're driving, Audible is a great way to listen to books. And uh, Joseph typically uh, narrates them himself as well. So you get a bit more of that, the heart and soul behind the parts that you know require that, that level. But yeah, so in speaking of those two books, so you wrote The Starbucks Experience in 2006. I was working at a college at the time, and I actually went out on eBay, and I bought about 100 Green Apron books because I wanted to share it with my departments. Now, I don't think they actually do the Green Apron book anymore, or if they do, it's different or it's met in a different way, and they don't do the black uh, aprons anymore. And then you went and read, wrote another book about leading the Starbucks way in 2013. So... Obviously, we don't expect Starbucks to stay the same over seven years. But what led you to like do that company twice? Yeah, well, first off, the book was incredibly successful, and the brand has such cachet, and it's a, a global uh, phenomena. So it was worthy of a, a revisit, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Clearly, things had changed badly uh, for a period there, right after the uh, kind of the downturn in the economy. Starbucks was seeing a real drop off in volume. Howard Schultz, who I'd worked with in the first book, had left the helm. He was the chief global strategist. He had to come back and, mm -hmm. and take back over from Jim Donald, who was the CEO at the time. And it seemed like, you know, here's a rebirth of a brand uh, relaunching and you know, reinventing itself. And it was the right time for me to try to capture what that looks like. And looking back at, and we're like now eight, nine years removed from that. Is there anything that surprised you revisiting Starbucks those years later that still stick in your mind? Yeah, I think that that leaders had the capacity to recreate the brand because, you know, if you look at it, other than Michael Dell did it really pretty well at one point in the history of Dell, lots of times the people who start up great brands are not the people to turn it back around somewhere down the road mm. uh, because it's not just the same formula over again. In, in the case of Starbucks, it was a lot about digitalizing the connection. It was about realizing that it wasn't the third place anymore. It was about creating, you know, inspiring experiences wherever customers were. And, mm. and I think that was a wonderful ability to see leaders, you know, really take a pause and say, what got us here won't get us there to, to kind of take the, a phrase from a great book title. I was going to say, I think I read that book as well. I forget who wrote it though. Oh man. <laughs> oh, and I, and I, it's on my bookcase behind me. I'll, I'll go check it out again. Yeah. And the cover, if you're in a bookstore, the cover has like a ladder that's disconnected. So if you're looking for that book, check it out. So 
you know, one of the things I found absolutely fascinating is, again, the new gold standard. I shared that far and wide with my friends, my colleagues, et cetera. And, um, and I'm going to blank now. Hans, I think his name was the CEO for the Ritz Carlton. Hans Schultz, yeah. He, I saw him on the leadership speaker series lots. He had lots of great things to say. And then we see the evolution of the hotel industry. And I wonder, was the Airbnb way kind of like an unofficial connection in the same way you had the Starbucks? Or did, was that just unintentional and happened to be a nice thing? No, no, no. It was very intentional. And quite frankly, in 2008, I think is about when I was writing the, the new gold standard just to date us all again. Um, and I was sitting with the CEO and we were debating issues like, can we serve a beer in a bottle at a Ritz-Carlton or must it always be elegantly presented in a glass? Yeah. And we were having these debates about the customer experience and relevance in 2008. Well, we were doing that. There were two guys in San Francisco who got some air mattresses and a bunch of Pop-Tarts and created the air bed and breakfast with the Pop-Tarts and the air mattresses. And they were subletting out their, their place in San Francisco. You know, fast forward uh, 10 years, 15 years later, and suddenly the net worth of a brand that owns nothing is greater than the net worth of the entire Marriott family, which absorbed Ritz-Carlton. So I think it was time to tell a story of an evolving travel world and what it takes to be relevant. And some of that uh, had to do with the uh, you know, the uh, subletting of properties and the gig economy. But a lot of it, I think, had to do with how do we create some warmth mm. in a hospitality experience, something local, something quirky, mm. as opposed to something that was, you know, just the same everywhere. And I woke up in another Marriott and didn't know what city I was in. And it looked a lot like the Marriott I was in the night before. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there was something about that that I wanted to tell. And I really enjoyed working on that book because Chip Conley was kind enough to take some time with me. And he had been a, a big, big consultant in the Airbnb space. And Chip has written some fabulous books himself, like Peak. Yep. Um, so anyway, it, it just was a wonderful journey. And it was time to tell a different side of hospitality. Dude, I want to be in your book club because we all read the same books. I love it. <laughs> I was in Phoenix in 2020, January, just before the start of COVID. I think I came home to basically Toronto starting to lock down. And uh, the Airbnb I stayed in was the front part of this like widowed uh, elderly lady's house. And like I showed up and there was like bagels and butter in the fridge for me, which I didn't ask for. She just said, I thought you might appreciate this. And on the last day, she wrote me a thank you card and she gave me a bookmark with pressed flowers from her garden. And I was like, what? Like, first of all, I haven't seen a pressed flower bookmark in like 30 years. So that was crazy. But I was like, this is what I expect from Airbnb. And I want to uh, juxtapose that against Toronto during COVID. Whole condos were empty because they were pretty much 90% Airbnb properties. And um, there's no question of this, just more thoughts on uh, maybe some trends you might be seeing because Airbnb, when you wrote that book, probably had a certain thing. Yeah, that was the worst timing. I think I could have ever written a book. It released at the end of 2019. How great Airbnb was. Now nobody could actually stay anywhere or travel anywhere. It was not a good scene. And and but we did, you know, just for a quick aside, in Stronger Through Adversity, which was my last book, I did talk with the folks at Airbnb and I did a nice, I think, juxtaposition of how Airbnb tried to handle being in the middle of the transaction between the buyer and the seller versus how uh, Ticketmaster uh, uh, StubHub, I think, tried to do it. Yeah. Um, and I think what you saw really was a lot of brands struggling to figure out what was right 
for consumers mm. uh, in the context of the pandemic. And when you're the, when you are the the platform in a marketplace, how do you treat both the buyers and sellers with some dignity so refunds were handled and processed appropriately? Yes, yeah, it was a terrible terrible time to write a book about Airbnb. And by the way, Marshall Goldsmith is the uh, author of the book. Uh, what got you here won't get you there. Just for the record. Yeah, it's a, and again, definitely check it out. There's like so many great lessons to be learned, even in 2022. So let's just talk a bit more, like. Uh, I know that you, your evening gig is writing books. You consult and you do keynote speaking. So what other trends are you seeing in your work that uh, I think are blanket enough could apply to somebody who owns like a small flower shop versus somebody who's leading a department at a software company? Yeah. So, I mean, I hop a plane tomorrow and spend time, you know, stand, stand on a stage with 2000 people out there in the audience and it's a group of dentists and we'll be talking about kind of the, the new realities around consumer perceptions of security and safety. I mean, they're always been there in the consumer mind space, but they've always been in the recesses. They're now more pronounced. Will they stay? We're seeing obviously the trend toward convenience, uh, make it easier for me. If I were running a dry cleaner or a flower shop or whatever it might be, I would be thinking about how do I make this easier for my consumer each and every single day? Mm. What can I do to automate as many touch points as possible for people who want to opt to convenience of automation? How do I make sure that I have people available who are warm, loving, and extremely knowledgeable when either the technology fails or in cases where people opt human. Mm. Those are just some of the trends that I think we're seeing with great frequency. The days of cash are probably gone and digital pay and QR codes will forever be part of our landscape. QR codes, the greatest comeback. Oh, Zappos experience, we put QR codes throughout the book because the company's really a quirky uh, company and we wanted to show a lot of the videos. And when you actually had to open a QR app in order to use them, the utilization was nothing. Now yeah. the technology makes it super, super easy. It's amazing. Also, I think you've coined like opt human. Yeah, that's my, I love that phrase. I love to opt human. I, I love the idea that we are human powered and technology aided. That's it. Uh, we really mm-hmm. are. We should try to drive experiences that, that are uniquely human, but are aided by the magic of technology. Hmm. Do you uh, find it hard to like walk around a mall and wouldn't it be a consumer and just knowing what you know and your expertise, like, is that difficult for you? Yeah, there's two things I don't do well. I don't watch other speakers on stage very well because I'm always watching the stagecraft and I seldom really get the message. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I'm kind of really bad at that. And then in, in customer experience worlds, I just, sometimes I delight so much in it. And other times I just anguish that people don't get an idea that every moment in their life, they have the opportunity to give something powerful and get something back for it. Mm-hmm. But they're so self-absorbed and so annoyed and so crispy that they fail to see the magic of the moment. So let's talk about one you've experienced recently. You know, for me, just a very simple moment. Um, It was at a big box store. So again, not the place you would think of. And there was this little kid who was kind of looking at something. And this this team member came up to them and said, tell me a little bit about what you're imagining with that. It was just about asking this child to to not not tell, you know, want to buy it. There was no sales pitch to it. It was just like, tell me what you're imagining as you look at that. And it was... You know, it's a lot of what the Lego store was trying to do. Yeah. You know, some of their technology allows you to see actually the things in the boxes put together in three-dimensional, mm-hmm. uh, some of the technology interfaces. But it was just trying to activate her, you know, her 
imaginary world so that uh, she could dream something, mm. right? I don't know. To me, that, that touched me. Yeah, I, uh, I was actually thinking about, I have a friend who was a Lego store employee and he didn't need to work. He actually had uh, written software that was purchased by a large company and he was made for life, but led a very humble existence. And he loved Lego. So he went and worked in Lego and he went and worked there at the store because the manager told him his job is to make people love Lego. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he didn't have sale. He personally did not have sales target numbers. Uh, and so it really just allowed him to like talk to the kid, the parent, whoever. I just thought that was a really great like approach. It's in, really it's a paradigm more than anything. Yeah, and I think that the whole notion is that engage people, right, in their dreams and in their family and their occupation and their recreational interests. Have a relationship based on things that are important to the other person. At least start one. Mm -hmm. And and I saw that happening sparked by that little bit of a moment. Very cool. Okay. All right. Well, um, I want to ask you now, of course, about your newest book, Stronger Through Adversity. And you interviewed, I think the number was 141 or somewhere up there. And you want to understand how they navigated challenges brought on by the pandemic. And what I really appreciated about this book was that you read, uh, I could go on HBR or LinkedIn and read a billion articles by one person and their opinion on how to navigate the pandemic. And I had, a, I worked for somebody at one time who would tell me uh, the plural of anecdote is not evidence. And so I just keep that uh, front of mind that I can read your one experience, but does not mean this is the way uh, forward. So. You talked to all these people. What did you learn about successful leadership through writing your previous books that gave you a sense of how leaders could navigate successfully? Like, obviously, you would have had a sense that I'm going to ask these leaders this question and hopefully they can give me good answers. So what was it that gave you uh, that sense? Yeah, so I think when I did this, you know, just the, the etiology of the book is relevant. I was trying to help brands who were in immediate crisis mm-hmm. figure out how are we going to take care of our customers given that everything was uncertain. And as I was in those those task forces with all these executives and all these companies that I work with, I was realizing the leadership was so varied. Like mm-hmm. some people were very dogmatic and directive and very confident and others were constantly resetting the clock every 24 hours and trying to figure out what was real. And all I knew is that no one knew what they were doing. Um, None of us had been through this kind of thing before. And so I just started asking, and my background is as a clinical psychologist by training. And so it was not unusual for me to ask a lot of questions and they seem to really want to talk. <laughs> mm. And I think what I really enjoyed was how vulnerable people were in this crisis. I, not that they, I would want this crisis on anyone, but that they were becoming increasingly transparent. They were becoming more of that Brene Brown, you know, complete, vulnerable, authentic leader. And yeah. I got some really wonderful insights about how people were approaching the chaos that I didn't used to get in most of the work that I had done. Mm. People just had a little bit too much fear that the shareholders would find out uh, that there was a chink in the armor. Mm. Uh, so no, this was a lovely, lovely time to see people more vulnerable. And, and it was attractive to their team members. We saw really high levels of employee engagement for the most vulnerable and transparent of leaders. How do you first get interested in asking questions applying that knowledge and helping others like where was it uh, nurtured nature? I was definitely nurtured by my parents, right? So 
my mom, every time we'd go to someone's house, it seems like she would just ask them a million questions. And, and I remember as a kid saying, mom, why do you, why are you so nosy? Right. And, mm. and my mom's classic style sat down and said, well, you know, you could think about it as nosy or you could t- think about it as interested. Mm. And she goes, I'm not particularly interesting except for the level to which I'm interested. Mm. And I think the rest of my life has been that. I mean, you know, look at this show. You're interesting to your to your listeners because you take such a deep interest in people, this authentic, nice interest in people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that just causes people to say, wow, I want more of that. Yeah. Right? We crave people who take an interest. And I think my mama taught me that pretty well. And mm-hmm. throughout my life, it's gotten me out of a lot of trouble because the more questions I ask, the less likely I'm going to say something extremely stupid. Yeah, I know there's, uh, since I've enjoyed quoting authors with you, I'll quote another one, Molly Fletcher, who was a sports agent uh, in Atlanta and now has a consulting company, uh, says, curiosity is the essence of a hungry leader. Trade defensiveness for curiosity. Mm. And I think that is uh, the great words to live by. So I want to give you a chance to speak about the McKelly experience that I think is newer to what you're doing and part of your uh, offering. Can you tell us a little bit about what this is? And like uh, people that listen to this podcast are typically, uh, you know, executive directors of nonprofits, uh, sales folks, business leaders, we have some educators, some uh, faith-based leaders as well. So just to understand who might be listening to you right now. Sure. So I, I think we're evolving, like hopefully everyone else is. You know, a lot of what we do is consulting. So we go into companies and we try to help them elevate their service levels. Mm-hmm. We've certainly done that in churches and helping them create experiential offerings, you know, that are really embracing and welcoming and create belonging, as an example, in the faith-based arena. But beyond consulting, we do plenty of keynotes where we'll talk about authentic leadership or servant leadership and, and how service serves us, how serving others enables us to, to fulfill our mission uh, and empowers us to do more. I think in transition, we're doing more board positions and looking at mm-hmm. you know, areas that are particularly close to my heart. I'm currently uh, about to step onto a board now that's all about digital wellness and helping kids. You know, you're not going to avoid the internet. Uh, the, these devices are extremely addictive. The question is, how do we create digital fitness? So that's a, mm-hmm. a part of what we're looking at now from a social perspective, maybe helping some kids who are otherwise in trouble based on their online behavior. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a mixed bag of things. And as I get older and I, I think less about money and think more about, about significance, uh, I think we're, we're getting into more and more things where we believe we could have a greater impact. Hmm. Yeah. You know, um, just for context around leading with nice, that's the name of our agency as well, not just a podcast. And in 2018, the company, I did mostly comms work. I called it Coleraine Communications. My wife was born in this Northern Ireland town called Coleraine. And a mentor of mine said, you know, Matthew, I love the name that you, you honor your wife through your business, but like really you just preach gratitude and empathy and trust and generosity and, and service. Like you always talk about leading with nice. And so that's why we called the company that in 2018. And I remember thinking, oh, who wants a company? Like I know people believe in this, but who wants to work with a company? But now, man, like what you're talking about, I can't get over how many people are drawn to us because they want more of that. Like the empathetic leader through COVID, it's just those people have risen to the top. So 
Yeah, well, I had a flirtation with, uh, and we had the website for a while, and we still, I think, have the URL of surprisingly kind. And it was just wanting to, te- you know, get stories of it. And my my thinking behind it was, I, I didn't want random acts of kindness, right? Like right. to me, I wanted it to be intentional, mm-hmm. and I didn't want it to be kindness that was just expected. Like because my boss was nice to, you know, because my he's they're my boss, I'll be kind, intentionally kind, but uh, I wanted to be surprisingly kind right? Like doing the extra things of kindness, that one plus kindness. Mm. Um, so we, we definitely try to get kind stories and ran that for a while. It just was a whole separate business enterprise. I figure I'll re-liven it when I fully retire. But I love this whole mindset of goodness, mm-hmm. kindness. The world just needs it. I mean, we are craving and in pain with all the ugly and evil and it gets the headlines and I just hope more and more kindness is the force that, that we embrace because it does change the world. Okay. Last question. I want you to speak to this employer right now. Uh, I heard a story this week of a friends of a friend who, you know, had to make sure their mouse moved every five minutes to, you know, for their employer's satisfaction. And they're of course looking for a new job. What is your message to employers of that mindset right now? Yeah, it was a, it was a, Good old days mindset, you know, it's a, a management philosophy of Taylorism, you know, where you put people in a box and you manage them in the box and, and you watch for performance in the box and, you know, it's cubicle culture. And there's been so many variations of, I got to see you in order to know if you're performing or not. Let's manage performance. Let's not manage physical space. Let's not manage mouse clicks. Mm. Um, you've lost yourself in all of that. Let's manage impact and the key performance indicators that suggest we're having impact. And if you don't, in the great reset that people have, often called the great resignation, it's not only their mouse need to move, their mouse is going to move to another employer. I mean, that's where their mouse is going to go. So it's, it's understandable. It's just kind of old school thinking. Okay. Well, Joseph, uh, you and I, had a conversation today. Thanks to many people. I know uh, you have a colleague that helped arrange this. Naomi Grossman is our uh, EA at Leading With Nice. She arranged this, helped research some questions. Amber Tompkins, as I was doing work, I saw our Slack channel blowing up as she was taking care of stuff. If you saw this on social media, Jamie Hunter is our content manager. He made sure all of this happened. Austin Pomeroy made us sound great. He's the audio editor. Jeff Anhorn did all the videos. So if you saw the video on social or YouTube, thank you, Jeff Anhorn. And of course, I mentioned before we started recording, my dog was making noise and my wife came and got him and made sure he was being taken care of so there wouldn't be barks in the background. So thank you. But how come we didn't hear your wife's name or your dog's name? They should be cited too. Allison is my wife and Boomer is my dog. I know I had to specify Allison was my wife and Boomer was my dog. I get that. Yeah, I would have never guessed that. It would not have been really clear. Amazing, Joseph. That was well done. You made my day. All right, dude, listen. Thank you so much. Your website, josephbatelli.com. Definitely check out uh, Stronger Through Adversity. You can get it on Amazon, Audible. If you go to bookstores, it's there too. Uh, Have a great day. Thank you, Matthew. It was an honor to be here.